In part three of our Ukraine series, we're looking at the costs of forever wars as Ukraine becomes more and more of a permanent U.S. proxy state. As the Biden regime threatens war against China and Armageddon with Russia, we examine how capitalism as a political economic system is becoming more and more dependent upon war making to sustain itself. The stakes are rising for all of us. And as socialists, we see a dire need for a broad-based international working class environmental and anti-war movement. It is perhaps our only hope of survival. As independent journalists, we are asking for your support. There is still very little room in this country for critical debate at a time when the military media industrial complex is driving us all closer and closer to the brink. Nuclear war, World War III, and ecological collapse. We need spaces like this to be able to discuss life and death issues. So join us for this critical discussion and become a patron to support our rebellious work at patreon.com slash crawdadsandtaters. We can do this work with you, but not without you. Before we begin, we just wanted to give a shout out to our patrons on Patreon. We appreciate all of you so much. We know that we are living in terrible financial times and that our audience does not include members of the ruling class. So we know it's really not easy to give money to podcasts right now when it's a struggle to cover basic necessities. Still, we hope that you will consider honest, independent journalism to be a basic necessity, especially in times of war. So please know that any amount you can give is deeply appreciated and makes our continued work possible. And a special shout out to our VIP rebel, Liz Font. Okay, on with the program. Most significantly of all, and least discussed, is the fact that as the war continues, the limited efforts to deal with the overwhelming crisis of climate destruction, those reverse instead of moving to limit fossil fuels. What's happening is expansion of fossil fuel production, exuberance in the offices of ExxonMobil, Chevron, and the rest, uh, opening new fields for development, uh, uh, expansion of uh, uh, reduction of restrictions, uh, uh, search for new sources of oil. Uh, some of what's happening is, I mean, this, this means basically the end of organized human life on Earth. We're not talking about something minor. We have a narrow window in which the severe problems of heating the climate can be dealt with. As you close that window more and more, the less are the chances of survival of organized human life on Earth. That's what we're facing. That was internationally renowned linguist, author, and activist Noam Chomsky talking about the end of life on Earth as we know it. A cheery introduction to our latest episode, which is, once again, on Ukraine. Yes, another episode on Ukraine and the costs of war more broadly. And I know what you all are thinking. Why another episode on Ukraine? Are we just going to be a Ukraine podcast from now on? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, because Ukraine is becoming a semi-permanent proxy state. 
the U.S. is approving a more than $800 billion military budget, the largest in U.S. history, even after ending our forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, and now the Biden administration just passed another $12.3 billion to Ukraine as a must-pass addendum onto an emergency spending package that keeps the government open beyond September 30th. Every Democrat in the House and Senate voted for this $12.3 billion. Every single one. The New York Times reported, quote, Congress has now committed more military aid to Ukraine than it has to any country in a single year since the Vietnam War, reflecting a remarkable bipartisan consensus in favor of pouring huge amounts of American resources into this fight. The Democrats have truly become the war party, though I guess this isn't anything new since Obama started five new wars after promising to end Iraq and Afghanistan. And because it was an emergency spending bill, Congress didn't have the opportunity to debate this Ukraine spending. The U.S. government has committed nearly $70 billion in funds to Ukraine in just six months. So yeah, basically this administration is finding ways to make Ukraine spending become more and more institutionalized into permanent U.S. government spending. It's becoming part of our national budget indefinitely. Ugh. The World Socialist website reports, quote, the latest $12.3 billion includes $5.2 billion for the Pentagon, of which $1.5 billion is to replenish weapons supplies already shipped to Ukraine, and $3.7 billion for future transfers of weapons and equipment. There's another $3 billion to Ukraine to spend on military purchases and $4.5 billion, quote, to maintain the operation of Ukraine's national government according to a Biden administration fact sheet. In effect, the World Socialist website reports, the Ukrainian regime exists as a wholly American-funded extension of the NATO imperialist military alliance. It is an independent government in name only. And when we look at the budget, we can tell what the priorities of the ruling class are. The military spending on Ukraine is added on top of an already colossal military budget, which is slated to be over one half of all discretionary spending in 2023. There was zero pandemic funding in that emergency spending bill. As of October 2nd, the daily death toll from the COVID-19 pandemic remains well over 300. Daily new infections are averaging over 50,000 per day. And both figures are expected to skyrocket as colder weather drives people indoors into more confined and dangerous settings. Meanwhile, Biden claims the pandemic is over. And according to the CDC, more than 25,000 Americans have contracted monkeypox, a highly infectious and dangerous disease which can be life-threatening, especially for children and with no known cure. And in the meantime, Biden is continuing the policy that Trump started of privatizing Medicare. So rather than funding the pandemic or any kind of health care, they're spending billions on death and destruction that does not benefit the working class one bit. Yes, the United States is a war economy and continues to become more and more of one each year. This $800 billion will be the largest military budget in U.S. history. And let's not forget that we're not being actively attacked by any country. It's what global capitalists are investing in now in order to keep capitalism going. So, of course, Democrats and Republicans both support it. The Uniparty is largely in favor of the war, 
military spending bills, and Ukraine aid bills. They invest in these wars based on manufactured threats to U.S. global hegemony. No one is actually threatening the United States. Here's activist, author, international journalist Vijay Prashad on Democracy Now! discussing U.S. military spending versus spending for peace. Juan, let's just look at some numbers first. Um, last year, the calculation was that the world's powers spend $2 trillion, that's with a T, on weapons. The United States by itself spends nearly a trillion dollars. If you add the money in the Department of Energy budget for nuclear weapons and so on, a trillion dollars, two trillion globally. Meanwhile, the total budget for the United Nations is $3 billion. That's with a B. We spend trillions of dollars on weapons and only low billions on peace building. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, I want more people to know about these numbers. Those numbers are just absurd. $2 trillion a year globally on war, and the U.S. accounts for almost half of that. There's always more money for war in our budget. Ukraine is being used as an excuse to funnel more money to the military-industrial complex. This is just so frightening. And the U.S. public is just supposed to swallow all of this war-making hook, line, and sinker. Permanent funding for Ukraine while the U.S. working class is in shambles, while we have no national health care, while people are still dying of COVID by the thousands, while our climate is collapsing. And speaking of climate, let's not forget the four recent explosions in the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines caused by, quote, sabotage. Yeah, and in, in case people don't remember, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is Russia's 767-mile natural gas pipeline designed to export Russian gas to Germany and running through the Baltic Sea. It runs parallel to the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which already existed, and the Nord Stream 2 is not yet in operation, even though it was completed in September 2021. The U.S. has never liked these pipelines due to fears that Russia would use them for their own geopolitical advantage with Europe and Ukraine. In fact, in a RAND Corporation report, and RAND Corporation is heavily funded by the United States government, this report came out in 2019 entitled Overextending and Unbalancing Russia, and it says that in order to extend Russia economically, quote, a first step would involve stopping Nord Stream 2, end quote. Those are the exact words used by this Rand Corporation report that came out three years ago. Hmm. Interesting. So the pipelines were blown up in four places on September 26th, 2022, and no one claims responsibility for it. A few NATO states blamed it on Russia without any evidence. Russia, of course, denies blowing up its own pipelines, logical, and suspects that the United States was behind it. Of course, the U.S. denies it, but perhaps coincidentally or not, Secretary of State Blinken just talked about what a tremendous opportunity it is that this accident happened. Here he is. This is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant, and that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for um, 
for the years to come. But meanwhile, we're determined to do everything we possibly can uh, to make sure that the consequences of all of this are not borne by citizens in our countries or for that matter around the world. Well, he sounds pretty giddy to me. And I'm sure it came as a complete surprise to him. <laughs> so according to the German magazine Spiegel, back in the summer of 2022, none other than the CIA warned Germany about possible future attacks to the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic Sea. Of course, yeah, it doesn't take a genius to figure out who's behind this. The U.S. is the only country in the world that benefits from the destruction of these pipelines. In fact, Biden actually vowed that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline would never reach operation. Here he is on February 7th, 2022, at the White House, standing alongside German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Holy shit. That's the closest thing you can get to a smoking gun. Biden promised this pipeline would never see the light of day if Russia invaded. Do we really have any doubt who blew up this pipeline? And the worst part about all of this is the environmental impact. This act of international terrorism is now thought to be the largest fossil fuel gas leak in history. The U.S. Geological Survey estimates that it added a tenth of a percent of estimated annual global methane emissions to the atmosphere. So, yeah, part of the reason we have to stay on this topic of Ukraine is because of the permanence of the new proxy war with Russia. And part of the reason is that we need to put the military industrial complex into a larger context because of climate collapse. You just had an article published on this subject, right, Crawdads? Yeah, thanks for that. I had an article published in Counterpunch, Common Dreams, Real Progressives, and a couple other places called It's Time to Call It What It Is, A Capitalism-Induced Climate Crisis. And although I didn't exclusively focus on the military's impact on climate change, I do make the argument that carbon emissions from military accumulation are a key driver of ecological collapse and that this kind of profit-driven military accumulation is a direct result of a capitalist system. Here's a clip from a recent interview with our favorite sociologist, William I. Robinson, on how capitalism requires constant war. This is Greg Wilpert interviewing Robinson in August of 2022. You end uh, your book in a, on a not very optimistic tone, that is the Can Capitalism Endure? You said, quote, uh, the Ukraine crisis is not the cause, but a consequence of uh, the general crisis of global capitalism. That crisis will only get worse. Um, I just wonder if you could say a little more about um, what uh, what is driving exactly that kind of uh, interstate 
um, conflict uh, that we're facing right now, which seems quite serious, you know, especially with uh, Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan and you know the possibility of also a nuclear uh, confrontation, and then the crisis with Russia and the Ukraine. The point you're making is is what I call militarized accumulation and accumulation by repression. Meaning that if we go back to how we started the interview, you have all of this overaccumulated capital. The transnational capitalist class is awash in all of this cash, doesn't know what to do with it, how to keep on making profits. So another big outlet for this overaccumulated capital is by investing in systems of warfare, social control, and repression. And so, you know, Ukraine, there's the geopolitical dimension to Ukraine. There's all of these different dimensions. We can get into all of it. But one big dimension to it is that it is a wonderful, incredible opportunity for the military industrial complex, fused as it is with Silicon Valley and with the giant banks. So I wrote an article as after these two books, you know, were either published or were already in the press. But I wrote an article on on. Um, how, you, how the military industrial complex in the United States, literally, they said, happy days are here again. That's the actual term of the big contractor. Happy days are here again. And that's why the, the U.S. military is and NATO is gloating and saying this is going to be a prolonged war. So you pour billions of dollars of, you know, you accumulate capital by prolonging the Ukraine conflict and, you know, for 10 years, 20 years. Well, there you have it. Happy days are here again for the largest military contractors. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. Happy days for them and austerity for the working class. And climate collapse for all of us. Yeah. Um, we did edit this clip down a little bit just to make it a little shorter. If you want to hear William Robinson's full response, look up Capitalism, Structural Crisis, and the Global Revolt by the Analysis News on YouTube. The full interview is definitely worth listening to. And if you want to learn more about William Robinson's analysis on military accumulation, you can read his article in Truthout entitled, Global Capitalism Has Become Dependent on War Making to Sustain Itself. And we will link to it in the show notes. And so this is the broader context that we want to get to today, which is why we're calling this episode, The Costs of War. We find it very necessary to tie together capitalism, the military industrial complex, and ecological collapse. Yes. And we feel that if our species is actually going to survive with any kind of organized life on Earth, that our social movements really need to merge. The anti-war movement, the labor movement, climate and environmental movements, indigenous decolonization movements, abolition movements, all movements must begin working together under an anti-capitalist, anti-colonial agenda if we are going to survive. Wait, did you say anti-war movement? What anti-war movement? <laughs> I know, right? It's been pretty much non-existent lately. The corporate media has done such a bang-up job of thoroughly demonizing Russia over the last several years that there are actually very few voices in resistance to this anti-Russia warmongering especially after the Democrats like HRC relied so heavily on Russiagate to explain her defeat in 2016, the Democrats were already primed to hate Russia. So how do you galvanize a broad anti-war movement without any Democratic support? That's a good question. I and mean, I think it starts with revealing the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party. You know, any peace movement cannot be linked to a party that funds war. We have to break free from any illusions that the Democrats aren't a pro-capitalist, pro-imperialist, warmongering party. Socialists have no place in the Democratic Party, which is led by 
I beat the socialist Joe Biden. They punch left every chance they get and enable the extreme right to feed off of their inability to meet the material needs of the working class. We just really need a working class movement that isn't based around either of these corporate parties. Amen to that. And over the last several months, all of this anti-Russia rhetoric has ramped up so much, of course, with the, quote, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And now the corporate media is so anti-Russia, anti-China, anti-Cuba, and anti-Venezuela, it's really just a new Cold War era for the United States. Of course, in some places, it's a hot war, like in Ukraine and Russia. Actually, Taters, you just wrote an article recently about the U.S. demonization of Cuba and Venezuela, didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the Biden regime has called Cuba a failed state. Cuba has higher life expectancy and performs better in terms of healthcare, literacy, their response to the COVID pandemic, along with various other quality of life metrics. So the U.S. has been blaming Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba for the so-called immigration crisis at our southern border, even though this crisis has been caused by U.S. interventions and policies and sanctions on Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, not by what the Biden regime has called communist dictatorships. Biden promised during his campaign to re-engage with Cuba and lift the sanctions imposed by the Trump administration. But instead, he's placed new sanctions on them after the failed color revolution attempt during the summer of 2021. The hypocrisy is incredible. After unrelenting U.S. sanctions on Venezuela for years and a 60-year U.S. embargo on Cuba, now the United States has the nerve to call them failed states. Ironically, their socialist policies are the only thing that have actually protected their people in spite of constant external interference and threats from the United States and transnational capitalism. It's true, this is a new Cold War era. In the United States, the goal is to rally the public against the constant communist enemy. Even though Russia is not communist, they count on the US public not realizing that. Whether it's China, Venezuela, Cuba, or Russia, the goal is to make us scared. And if we're scared, we'll always be compliant for more wars abroad, for more austerity, and for class war at home. We'll forget about the fact that our life expectancy is falling in the U.S., that people can't afford rents, food, or gas, that we're mired in student debt. We'll forget about all of our material needs here as transnational CEOs make record profits. And they'll also count on the public to forget that the U.S. military is accelerating the climate crisis. Right. So that is why we're still working on this Ukraine issue, because Ukraine is part of a new Cold War, which is already a hot war and could easily become a nuclear war. And all of this anti-communist hate and fear mongering is being stirred up in order to drive military accumulation and profits under transnational capitalism. And our ecosystem is collapsing. Okay, so let's pick up where we left off with last episode with the U.S. slash Ukraine history. We covered more of what happened in the aftermath of the U.S.-backed 2014 coup when the U.S. helped install an anti-Russian government in Ukraine. 
This was the same year that a bloody civil war was launched by the far-right neo-Nazi forces inside the Ukrainian government against the people of the Russian-identifying Donbass. And so began this bloody eight-year civil war in the Donbass, killing some 15,000 people. No Western media reported on it, as the United States was backing Poroshenko, the coup government that was waging this war. We covered this history thoroughly in episode two. And since 2014, U.S. officials will occasionally blame Russia for the deaths of some 15,000 people in eastern Ukraine, even though Russia was largely not present in Ukraine during that time. Remember, Crimea voted to join Russia in 2014, what the West always calls an invasion and annexation. But the Crimean people voted to join Russia at the rate of 97%. That sounds pretty unanimous to me. Yep. And Donetsk and Luhansk also broke away from the coup government in 2014, wanting to be independent. But Russia didn't recognize these regions as independent until 2022. Yeah, and we don't know why that is. We can only speculate. Why did it take Russia so long to recognize these independent republics? Was it because Russia wasn't militarily prepared to defend them? We simply don't know. Right. But the point is, why would Russia be engaged in war in the Donbass from 2014 to 2022? Crimea voted to join Russia with a clear majority, and Russia wasn't trying to capture the other independent regions during that time. So someone else was doing the killing of some 15,000 people between 2014 and 2021. We'll leave it to you to draw your own conclusions. Right. So let's pick back up with the history. Um, in the last episodes, we already covered the steady march Ukraine has made towards joining NATO, a clear provocation of Russia, which violated every red line that Russia has laid out for decades. And in order to truly understand why Russia decided to attack Ukraine, we need to go deeper into the events leading up to the day that the U.S. claims history started, February 24th, 2022. Yep, that is the day that U.S that the United States claims history started. But the timing of these recent events is super important to understanding the current war. So let's back up to 2019 when the United States withdrew from the INF Treaty. That's the Intermediate Nuclear Force Range Treaty. That was the end of most of the arms control treaties between the United States and Russia. There used to be several, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the INF Treaty, and the Budapest Memorandum although the last one wasn't an official treaty and not legally binding. But by 2019, all of the legally binding ones were gone because the U.S. had pulled out of them. Here's Vijay Prashad once again on the significance of this. You see, the question isn't Ukraine and Russia by itself. Um, it's also the United States and Russia. So when the United States withdrew from the Intermediate Nuclear Force Range Treaty in 2019, that was the end, basically, of most of the arms control treaties between the United States and Russia. In fact, since 2019, we're living without a security guarantee arrangement between these major nuclear powers, the United States and Russia. No wonder that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has brought the doomsday clock to within 100 seconds of midnight. You know, it began at 7 minutes 
minutes to midnight. We are now at 100 seconds. And the reason the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists gives for this is the unilateral withdrawal by the United States from basically the entire architecture of arms control with Russia in particular. So the United States has withdrawn from every nuclear arms control treaty in the last several years, but it was still a totally unprovoked invasion, right? Right. And yeah, on October 6th, 2022, Zelensky called for a preemptive strike on Russia's nuclear capabilities, saying, quote, I once again appeal to the international community as it was before February 24th preemptive strikes so that they, the Russians, know what will happen to them and not vice versa, end quote. This was a statement so inflammatory that his own staff had to back it down to say that he wasn't calling for nuclear war. But there's really nothing else he could have been referring to when he talks about a preemptive strike. 100 seconds to midnight might be a little bit optimistic. Wow. All of this after the United States has dismantled all nuclear arms treaties with Russia. And to make matters worse, in April of 2022, the United States reinstated a first-use policy for nuclear weapons, meaning that they could respond to non-nuclear threats with a nuke. This is a violation of Biden's campaign promise to only use nuclear weapons for deterrence and retaliation in case of a nuclear attack. This is a horrible development. The reckless actions of the Biden regime have brought us closer and closer to nuclear apocalypse, closer than any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. And Biden is no JFK. He's not going to turn to diplomacy to de-escalate the situation. On October 6th, Biden spoke at a private fundraiser at the home of James Murdoch, son of multi-billionaire media mogul Rupert Murdoch. While it was not recorded, news reports say that Biden also invoked the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 1960s, saying that the United States is closer to Armageddon now than at any time since the 60s. He also said that Putin has made a direct threat of using nuclear weapons if things continue down the path that they are going. And he said that Putin is not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because, quote, his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming, end quote, according to Biden. So yeah, if this were JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis, the president would be finding every path possible to avert nuclear disaster. But instead, after ramping up this conflict for decades, here we are in the 11th hour before a nuclear catastrophe, and Biden is still playing war games, blaming everything on Putin, insulting his military performance, and wiping his hands clean of any responsibility toward United States citizens or humanity at large. Yeah, and let's remember that Russia doesn't have a nuclear first-use policy. It's the United States that does, and that just recently reinstated this policy. And let's not forget the key players in the Biden regime. Raytheon board member Lloyd Austin III and corporate lobbyist Antony Blinken. This stellar team is treating the run-up to nuclear war like a video game, and they don't really seem to give a shit if they sacrifice all of us. That's absolutely terrifying the way the ruling class is treating this conflict. So let's jump 
forward here a little bit to 2021. You know, the following summary comes from the research of Liberation News journalist Eugene Perrier. Zelensky, in early 2021, who had by this time completely given up on any hope of stopping the conflict in eastern Ukraine through peaceful methods, took on a more nationalistic stance toward the Donbass and Russia. He closed down television networks. He charged the leader of his largest opposition party with treason. He announced Ukraine's plans to join NATO. He announced plans to retake Crimea. And under Biden, the U.S. increased arms shipments to Ukraine, which sparked a small Russian troop buildup along the Russian border near Ukraine in March of 2021. And also in March, NATO launched one of its largest military exercises in decades called Defender Europe 2021, involving nearly 30,000 soldiers, sailors, and airmen from across NATO countries. In the words of the Pentagon, the exercises were to show NATO's, quote, readiness, lethality, and interoperability, end quote, as a way of intimidating Russia. The start of these exercises prompted Russia to increase its troops from a reported few thousand to reportedly over 40,000. And at the same time that these NATO exercises were going on, both Ukraine and the People's Republics of the Donbass were trading claims of increased attacks on either side, further increasing tensions in the civil war. The situation was clearly a tinderbox, and by May 2021, United States was warning that a Russian invasion was a real threat. Remember, the U.S. was warning about a Russian invasion long before it happened. Then on September 1st, 2021, the United States and Ukraine issued a joint communique where the U.S. pledged to, quote, support Ukraine's aspirations to join NATO and reaffirmed Ukraine's status as a NATO partner, and announced a new U.S.-Ukraine joint defense framework and pledged to help Ukraine work around the existing roadblocks to joining NATO. Just about a month later, Russia started to harden its negotiating position. Big surprise. And that further escalated U.S. accusations that Russia would invade. So we see a real pattern of U.S.-NATO escalation since March of 2021. Yeah, it's just been a constant escalation from the U.S.-NATO side. Um, let's jump forward a little bit here. We're going to jump to the 14th of February, 2022. Just 10 days before history started. Yes, yes. <laughs> This uh, following timeline is mainly sourced from former Swiss intelligence officer Jacques Bode. You can find the article he wrote in English on The Postal. It's entitled The Military Situation in Ukraine. So on February 14th, 2022, Russia's ambassador to the EU, Vladimir Chizhov, declared that Moscow would be within its rights to launch a counterattack against Ukrainian forces if it felt it needed to protect Russian citizens living in eastern Ukraine. He said in an interview with The Guardian, quote, We will not invade Ukraine unless we are provoked to do that. If the Ukrainians launch an attack against Russia, you shouldn't be surprised if we counterattack, or if they start blatantly killing Russian citizens anywhere, in the Donbass or wherever, end quote. This was a clear warning to the EU, NATO, and the U.S., 
that Russia was serious about protecting the ethnic Russians living in the Donbass, which we talked about last episode. And so the next day, February 15th, 2022, the Duma, Russia's lower house of the parliament, voted to ask President Putin to recognize the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic as independent. But Putin still refused at this time. Wow, this is fascinating. So even though Donetsk and Luhansk had been largely Russian identifying since 2014, Putin still didn't recognize them, even in early 2022. Right, which is why it's absurd to accuse Putin of killing 15,000 in Ukraine's civil war. Right. And then on February 16th, 2022, the very day after the Duma asked Putin to recognize Donetsk and Luhansk, Ukraine began a massive shelling campaign inside the Donbass. And the next day, February 17th, President Biden announced Russia was going to attack Ukraine. At the same time, the shelling continued to increase in the Donbass. This shelling was not acknowledged by Western media and governments like France, who had previously agreed to the Minsk Accords. The West completely ignored the escalation by Ukrainian forces in the Donbass. And this is really the tail wagging the dog here, with the United States announcing that Russia would imminently attack after U.S.-backed Ukraine began a massive shelling campaign in the Donbass. I mean, talk about putting Putin into a corner. I remember this. They were The news was constantly saying that he would attack for weeks before he actually did. And I kept thinking, geez, if the United States has so much intel on what Putin's going to do, why aren't they trying to engage in diplomacy and prevent this attack on poor Ukrainians? Well, we know why they wanted this war. And yeah, this constant shelling in the Donbass continued without stop. So then on February 19th, 2022, Ukraine's President Zelensky gave a speech at the Munich conference in which he actually threatened to pull out of the Budapest Memorandum. Mm, and let's remind people what the Budapest Memorandum is. Right. So the Budapest Memorandum was an agreement made after the fall of the Soviet Union that Ukraine would agree to nuclear disarmament. This agreement was signed by Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Okay. So first, the United States pulls out of the Anti-Ballistic Missile ABM Treaty in 2002. Then the United States pulls out of the INF Treaty in 2019. And then Ukraine threatens to pull out of the Budapest Memorandum. Geez, if I didn't know better, it sounds like the United States is preparing for nuclear war using Ukraine as its proxy. Yeah, that definitely is what this sounds like. And since the Ukraine is right on Russia's border, the end of all these anti-nuclear treaties would definitely be a concern to Russia. Of course it would. So what happened next? So finally, on the 21st of February, after five days of continuous shelling of the Russian-speaking population in the Donbass, President Putin recognized the independence of the two breakaway territories in eastern Ukraine, the Luhansk People's Republic and Donetsk People's Republic. Treaties of friendship, cooperation, and mutual assistance were signed by Russia and the leaders of the LPR and the DPR. Several Western leaders condemned the move, calling it a violation of the Minsk peace deal. 
Jeez. So now all of a sudden the West considers these mutual support treaties to be a violation of the Minsk Accords when they completely ignored the constant shelling of the Donbass by Ukraine, which was a total violation of the Minsk Accord. Right. Talk about hypocrisy. You know, and even after Putin recognized the breakaway republics and signed these treaties, Ukraine still didn't ta- stop the artillery bombardment, which was some of the worst the Donbass had seen in more than eight years of civil war. Wow. And then two days after Putin signed these treaties on February 23rd of 2022, the day before history began. <laughs> <laughs> The heads of the People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, Denis Pushilin and Leonard Pasechnik, I'm not going to pronounce that right, requested Russian help in, quote, repelling the aggression of the Ukrainian armed forces, end quote, according to the Interfax News Agency, quoting Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov. Right. So then history started the next day, February 24th, (laughs) when military operations in Ukraine began, as the Western media says, you know, the day of Russia's unprovoked invasion. Totally unprovoked. Yeah. Yeah. Completely unprovoked. (laughs) And I think it's (laughs) worth noting. (laughs) Yeah. So absurd. It's, yeah, it's worth noting here that Putin actually invoked Section 51 of the UN Charter, Responsibility to Protect, in order to launch this special military operation in Ukraine. So, as we've been saying, this was the day that the Western media defines as the beginning of this war. It's so crazy when you see this entire timeline, because you can see all of the context surrounding Russia's military engagement. Clearly, this war did not begin on February 24th. It actually began with a U.S.-backed coup in 2014 and all the events that led up to this point. A right-wing anti-Russian coup government in Ukraine, a civil war inside Ukraine run by Azov and other Nazi battalions on the border of Russia, the massive expansion of 13 NATO states surrounding Russia, the breaking of anti-nuclear treaties by the United States, the plans to have Ukraine join NATO, the violations of the Minsk Accords, Zelensky threatening to pull out of the Budapest Memorandum, all the way up to the shelling of the Donbass just days before the, quote, unprovoked Russian invasion, <laughs> as the Western media describes it. Clearly, there were years and years of provocation leading up to this moment and an intense escalation of provocation in the days leading up to Russia's military intervention. I mean, given all of this, it seems like Russia's restraint and willingness to continue diplomacy for years is actually kind of remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. And Zelensky just recently signed a decree formally declaring the prospect of any Ukrainian talks with Russia's Vladimir Putin as, quote, impossible. And once again, Russia responded by saying they're still willing to negotiate, even if it means they have to wait until Zelensky isn't president anymore. Wow. So for now, it seems that any prospect of peace is off the table, which is exactly what the United States wants. Another forever war, just like Iraq and Afghanistan. And they're still pushing this line that the war was unprovoked. Anytime you hear politicians or news media referring to an 
unprovoked invasion, then you know that this is just pure propaganda. Yep. Even the decorated war criminal Henry Kissinger has come out against Biden's escalation of the war in Ukraine. And he has been totally ridiculed and ostracized by the U.S. corporate media. Yeah, you know, when Henry Kissinger becomes the voice of reason, we're really screwed. Mm -hmm. Here's a uh, short discussion on Kissinger between Brian Becker and Eugene Puryear on the socialist program. You know, when I was um, active in organizing as a younger person against the Vietnam War, there were considered to be two camps in the U.S. ruling class. One were called the Hawks and one were called the Doves. And so the doves were for peace. And by peace, I mean not only the end of the war in Vietnam, the doves were for peaceful coexistence with the Soviet Union. The doves were against the continued escalation towards nuclear confrontation. The doves were for ending atmospheric tests of nuclear weapons. The doves were a real thing. They were a sector of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, not really progressive. They were capitalists, they were imperialists, but they were the, the imperialist doves, let's say. Henry Kissinger was not amongst them. Henry Kissinger was a hawk. Henry Kissinger was a real super hawk when he became national security advisor in 1969 when Nixon took office. It was the Nixon-Kissinger plan to saturate bomb Vietnam. And they bombed Vietnam to smithereens. They knew they weren't going to win the war, but in order to get peace with honor, as they put it. And in other words, not to be completely embarrassed by the U.S. imperialist defeat in Vietnam. They kept bombing and bombing and bombing. And another million Vietnamese died. So we all hated Henry Kissinger. He was the arch war criminal. Today, Eugene, Henry Kissinger is the dove. <laughs> and he's the only dove. The doves have died. There's the death of the doves. And Henry Kissinger, of course, is not a dove. He would be considered to be real politique, meaning recognizing that the United States can't control everything in the world, that the other major big countries like Russia, like China, have interests that are not going to go away. The U.S. can't just roll over them. So I'm mentioning all of this because Henry Kissinger dared to be almost the lone voice who suggested that there should be a compromise on Ukraine. He said, look, Ukraine should cede part of the territory, meaning the east, around Maripol, Luhansk, Donetsk, you know, the Donbass and Crimea, because they're historically really Russian and Russian speaking. And that would be the basis for peace. And he said, look, you, we have to have peace with Russia. Otherwise, we could end up having nuclear war. And at the same time, he said to the Biden administration, which had just pledged to go to war with China over Taiwan, you can't make Taiwan the centerpiece of U.S.-China relations, meaning support in defense of Taiwan. So I'm saying all this because Henry Kissinger is being scorched and roasted for being the lone voice. And again, it's not about, Henry Kissinger never changed. What changed is the American political landscape where somebody like Henry Kissinger, the arch hawk, 
is now a relative dove. Where we can see even someone like Henry Kissinger, someone who set up the overthrow of Salvador Allende's government and the murder and the massacre and torture of hundreds of thousands of people. Someone who, of course, as you said, supported the genocidal bombing all over Southeast Asia. I mean, one of the most execrable figures in U.S. foreign policy history can now somehow be portrayed as almost some sort of Putin puppet for just suggesting that we probably cannot win an all-out war and for humanity, nuclear war is self-defeating because we will all end up dying, that that somehow is an outlier position, that the New York Times editorial board just saying we shouldn't give unlimited uh, weapons to Zelensky is an outlier position. And, you know, these are not people who are out here supporting peace or who are challenging or questioning U.S. empire. So it does speak, I think, very heavily to the political moment that we are in, that it's clear that not only there's, I think, a a faction of people who are now becoming, we can talk about this, openly for nuclear war, but even the people who aren't openly speaking about it, there's no questioning at all of the unipolar U.S. imperialist drive to control the whole world. What do you think, Taters? Well, when Hillary Clinton's good friend Henry Kissinger, the famous war criminal, is the voice of reason, like we said, it's not a good look. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's like, if freaking Henry Kissinger, who orchestrated the coup in Chile and all these, you know, Vietnam and all these other horrible U.S. foreign policies is now the voice of peace, we are screwed. Yeah, we need a real anti-war movement, not one that's led by Henry Kissinger. It's the media. It's too. It's the corporate media who is, you know, ostracizing him and who is shunning him. And it just... That just shows like how the corporate media works directly for the military industrial complex. Yeah, they're completely sold out now. It's the military industrial media complex. Yeah. And we have to remember, Zelensky was elected as the peace president. He promised when he was elected that he would usher in peace with Russia and end the civil war in the Donbass. But instead, he became a tool of neo-Nazi forces that the U.S. is now financially and militarily backing. Yeah, and I want to bring us back to a you know clip we used in episode one on Ukraine, where Scott Ritter was talking about how you know the Jewish president of Ukraine became a tool for these Nazi forces. You know, for those of you who don't remember, Scott Ritter was the Marine Corps intelligence officer and UN weapons inspector for Iraq. He served in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm, and in Iraq, he was charged with overseeing the disarmament of weapons of mass destruction. But of course, these weapons didn't exist, so he ended up blowing the whistle on the weapons of mass destruction as a complete lie, a false flag. It was during the lead up to the Iraq invasion. And today, he's a major critic of U.S. foreign policy. What happened is the United States and European Union mobilized this virulent nationalist group out of Lvov in Western Ukraine, among whom were these neo-Nazis who worshiped Stepan Bandera and the, Band, uh, the Banderista movement, uh, which was a pro-Nazi Ukrainian national movement carried out a resistance in that area for decades. Um, these guys came in and took over Maidan, violently overthrew the, the, the legitimate president of Ukraine, and then imposed themselves through force of violence into the Ukrainian body politic. To give you an example of how powerful they are, when Poroshenko, who was the president before Zelensky, uh, negotiated the Minsk Accords in 2015, 2014, 2015, 
you know, he agreed that all they had to do is give a special autonomous situation to their status to the Donetsk and Lugansk, and they would stay part of Ukraine. He agreed with Germany and France. Then he came back, and the neo-Nazis said, you try and implement that, we'll kill you. Americans get upset with a bunch of rioters taking the capital and then leaving the same day. I get upset about it. I'm not happy about it. But the, it ain't an insurrection. An insurrection is what happened in Ukraine. What's happening every day. Zelensky was told. He was elected to be the president who brought peace. If you remember, Zelensky toured the front line because they were supposed to disarm. And he went up to the Azov battalion and he said, disarm. And they laughed at him, kicked him out. He said, I'm the president of Ukraine. They said, shut up, we'll slap you. He had to leave. And he was told, if you sign Minsk, we will hang you by the neck until dead. That's the control these people have. And they've done it in the military. They, you know, These people should have been disbanded, arrested, shot. Instead, the military absorbed them and then promoted their officers throughout the ranks so that there's neo-Nazis everywhere. And the biggest embarrassment of all is when British, American, and Canadian troops go to Ukraine to train that military and NATO tactics, NATO equipment. The photographs show that they're training the Azov Battalion because those were the first units Ukrainian military brought forward for training. We trained Nazis. Yeah, so even though we've heard this clip before, we thought it was important to hear it again to remind you all of the unique power structure inside Ukraine's military and government and who Zelensky has ended up working for. Um, this kind of expose into Ukraine's power structure is why Scott Ritter has been banned from Twitter. <laughs> right, and so the you know hero Zelensky that the U.S. public has been taught to fawn over, he may have started with good intentions. You know, he ran on a peace platform, working with Germany and France, you know, signing the Minsk Accords, but he quickly realized who was in charge. And he got in line. Yeah. It's so funny that so many Western liberals defending war in Ukraine will say that there's no way Ukraine has a Nazi problem because they have a Jewish president. And I always want to say to, to them, yeah, they have a Jewish president who's been castrated. He can't even stand up for peace without having his life threatened, literally. And now he's threatening nuclear war. So, so much for being a standing up for peace. Right. Well, yeah, now he's a U.S. puppet. Yeah. You know, Nazi puppet, U.S. puppet. It's basically the same thing at this point. Mm. But to get back to the timeline, it was a full week after the shelling campaign began in February 2022 that Putin came to the assistance of the people in Luhansk and Donetsk. You know, if Zelensky had any real power, he might have ended his campaign against these independent regions after Putin had signed the treaties with the People's Republics. These but, were the treaties of mutual support and cooperation that we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Zelensky did not. He kept on shelling. He knew that this would lead to war, and he was fully backed by the United States in this escalation. In fact, you know, he actually knew that the war was going to come from this provocation, U.S. intelligence had warned him that there was going to be a war and he was provoking the war, but he did not warn the Ukrainian citizens. Here's what Zelensky had to say in a recent interview with the Washington Post. Quote, you can't simply say to me, listen, you should start to prepare people now and tell them they need to put away money. They need to store up food. 
if we had communicated that, and that is what some people wanted, who I will not name, then I would have been losing $7 billion per month since last October. And at the moment when the Russians did attack, they would have taken us in three days. I'm not saying whose idea it was, but generally our inner sense was right. If we sow chaos among people before the invasion, the Russians will devour us because during chaos, people flee the country, end quote. Wow. So basically what Zelensky is saying here is that the Ukrainian economy and saving $7 billion a month was more important to him than the lives of his own citizens. That sounds like the kind of decision a corrupt leader funded by oligarchs whose shady deals were revealed in the Pandora Papers might make. <laughs> Zelensky is so slippery. I mean, you know, I don't know whether to feel sorry for him half the time for being such a tool of the United States and Ukrainian Nazis and NATO, or whether to just detest him for being so corrupt. I'd say he's a corrupt pawn of the United States and the oligarchy, so I don't feel like we need to feel sorry for him when he's profiting off of the misery of his people. Yeah. Before we get back to the history timeline, I just want to say that we can't overstate the significance of the fact that Nazis are being funded and publicly rehabilitated in the media in this war against Russia. Taters, you recently had a tweet that went viral about the New York Times using the phrase, quote, the celebrated Azov Battalion. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the New York Times published an article that started with the phrase, quote, Commanders of Ukraine's celebrated Azov Battalion have held an emotional reunion with their families in Turkey. <laughs> and then it went on to never mention that Azov is, in fact, a neo-Nazi battalion. <laughs> Now, the New York Times has reported in the past the connection of Azov with Nazis, but not this year. They've gone from neo-Nazis to celebrated. Yeah, the moral hypocrisy is breathtaking. In this moment, when Nazi movements are on the rise in Europe and the United States, when Nazi-inspired movements have taken over Charlottesville, when they stormed the Capitol on January 6th, what kind of hypocrisy is it for the United States to send billions and billions of dollars to Nazi-led battalions in Ukraine? That's why the media has gone silent on this. You know, even the same outlets, CBS, NBC, BBC, who occasionally did decent reporting on Nazi movements in Ukraine and how powerful they are, they won't touch the subject anymore. Yeah, We've talked about this before, and it's why faux-aggressives like Rokana, Representative Rokana, sponsored bills in 2018 to the effect of halting funding to the Azov Battalion for their Nazi affiliations, while he is now 100% behind funding them today. Yeah, and you're right to point out the contradiction between funding Nazis in Ukraine and what's happened in Charlottesville, for example, especially when you look at the connection between Ukraine and Charlottesville. Several members of the Rise Above movement who were prosecuted for their part in the violence at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville were trained by the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. Wow. Now, the Azov movement isn't just contained to one battalion in Ukraine. It actually has an international impact. The uh, Christchurch shooter in New Zealand who killed 51 people at two mosques also visited Ukraine and was inspired by Azov ideology. Whoa. He actually wore a flak jacket with an Azov insignia on it. Holy shit. The U.S. is funding a Nazi movement. 
I'm sorry, but this is going to come back and bite us in the ass big time. And especially all throughout Europe where all these U.S. weapons will be ending up. I mean, we know what happens when we leave war zones littered with weapons. It's our entire history. (laughs) (laughs) And the moral hypocrisy is just so insane. I mean, at this moment in U.S. culture, perhaps the U.S., the most celebrated filmmaker in the U.S., Ken Burns, has just released a documentary about the Holocaust, trying to warn us about the present rise of fascism all over the world, and also trying to inform people of how the United States was actually complicit in many aspects of the Holocaust. And that far from being these simple heroes of World War II, like so many in this country tend to think about our history, there's actually a much darker side of the United States. There there could have been much more done to prevent this genocide. So I suspect that there are a lot of liberals, especially watching this documentary right now. In fact, I know there are because I've seen them on Facebook. And they, you know, they're all willing to get, you know, really humble about the fact that, you know, maybe the U.S. had some role in Nazi Germany. Meanwhile, right now, we are funding Nazi battalions in Ukraine while completely unaware and unconcerned of the blowback that this proxy war might have in the future. It's really gross. It's just gross. And this is the kind of moral outrage that we're allowed to have as Americans. We're allowed to feel bad about history and the Holocaust and maybe be a tiny bit self-reflective about the U.S. role in World War II. We are not allowed to question the current war in Ukraine where we are actively funding Nazi-backed movements at this moment. That's awesome. Yeah, I think those liberals on Facebook have all blocked me at this point. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they have. <laughs> the, the hypocrisy here, you know, it really stinks given the Ukraine connection of Svoboda and the right sector and the Azov Battalion to Stepan Bandera. Yeah, the Ukraine connection to Stefan Bandera. Why don't you remind us of who Stefan Bandera is? Yeah, he was a member of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, a far-right organization that collaborated with Nazis in World War II. You know, after Germany invaded Ukraine, he launched a pogrom that killed 4,000 Jews in Lvov in a matter of days. Mm. You know, these Banderites, or Banderistas as they're called, helped the Nazis kill over 1.5 million Jews during World War II. Wow. And going back to Zelensky, Jewish Zelensky has actually said, quote, there are indisputable heroes. Stepan Bandera is a hero for a certain part of Ukrainians, and this is a normal and cool thing. He was one of those who defended the freedom of Ukraine, end quote. Holy fuck. My God, if Zelensky... I'm sorry, like, I want to respect whatever unique Ukrainian culture exists. But if Zelensky, a Jewish president, is saying that it's okay to celebrate Nazis as national heroes, no wonder the fact that he is a Jewish president is totally inconsequential. I mean, he has zero power. He is aiding and abetting Nazi forces in Ukraine, and he has given himself over to them. Yep, that's true. (laughs) Who said that? Said that. Oh, that's right. I was wondering where you got that. That's hilarious. 
so back to the U.S. history timeline. Uh, <laughs> sorry. In the U.S., a few months after the war started, there was a significant shift in rhetoric. Secretary of Defense and former Raytheon board member Lloyd Austin III confirmed that Ukraine is indeed a proxy war. Here's a clip of him speaking during a visit to Ukraine in April 2022. Uh, we want to see Russia uh, uh, weakened uh, to the degree that it can't uh, do the kinds of things that uh, it has done uh, in, in invading Ukraine. So it has already lost a lot of military capability uh, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of its troops, quite frankly. And uh, we want to see them not have the capability to very quickly reproduce that capability. Uh, we want to see the international community more united, uh, especially NATO. And we, we're seeing that. And that's uh, based upon the hard work of, number one, President Biden, but also uh, our allies and partners who have w willingly leaned into this uh, with us as we've imposed sanctions and as we've uh, moved very rapidly to demonstrate that we're going to defend every inch of NATO. Hmm. So it's not just about saving the poor Ukrainians from Russia anymore. It is about weakening Russia. Well, this comes as no surprise, but they are saying the quiet part out loud now. And the United States is committing to seeing this through until the end, or as Scott Ritter says, until the last Ukrainian is dead. I mean, it should really come as no surprise that the United States wanted to turn Ukraine into a forever war. Diplomacy is not profitable for the military-industrial complex. And given Lloyd Austin's connections to Raytheon, I think we can clearly see who he's still working for. Interesting note here, Noam Chomsky recently reported on Democracy Now! that back in April of 2022, peace negotiations between Russia and Ukraine were underway. They had an interim agreement in place that looked a lot like a Minsk II agreement. But then Boris Johnson and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin flew to Ukraine and derailed the agreement, saying that the West, meaning the UK and the United States, would not favor negotiations, that the war must continue, and that the goal was to, quote, weaken Russia severely, end quote. And the longer the war goes on, the prospects for peace diminish. And since it is a proxy war, of course, the warmongers of the U.S. Congress have been visiting Ukraine. Here's one of our favorite politicians, Nancy Pelosi, neoliberal queen of performative gestures, talking during her visit to Ukraine in early May 2022. We believe that we are visiting you uh, to say thank you. Uh, for your fight for freedom, that we are on a frontier of freedom, and that your fight is a fight for everyone. And so our commitment is to be there for you until the fight is done. We're going to fight for freedom until all of Ukraine is a wasteland. <laughs> <laughs> to the bitter end. Well, you know, no surprises here. Typical neoliberal propaganda coming from Pelosi. She does really seem to like visiting U.S. proxy states, I might add, as her recent visit to Taiwan suggests. But we'll get into that later. Yeah, that's her favorite thing to do, I guess. <sighs> Other than insider stock trading. <laughs> and eating gourmet ice cream. Oh, yes. From her $12,000 freezers. Right. During the pandemic, it made her feel great. Yes. While the rest of us looked on <laughs> in pure envy. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, let's uh, get one more clip here. Here was Joe Biden visiting the uh, a Lockheed Martin factory and praising them the whole time. This was in Alabama in May of this year. Well, we built the weapons and the equipment that helped defend freedom and sovereignty in Europe years ago. But that's true again today. You know, some of the best, most effective weapons in our arsenal, those Javelin missiles, like the ones manufactured right here in Pike County. I just love Javelin missiles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think in this same speech, he actually said that people in Ukraine are naming their daughters Javelina. What? <laughs> That is not right. And then yeah, the pres official presidential account actually tweeted this video clip out with a blurb about the, quote, arsenal of democracy. What? The arsenal of democracy? What the F? That is so Orwellian. That is like, that. that's like better than any Onion article I've ever read. Yeah, this is the sad reality we live in now. You know, real life is worse than any parody. You know, the Onion probably can't hire writers anymore because there's nothing to write about. Yeah, I mean, who could compete with Joe Biden and his <laughs> arsenal of democracy? Uh, the ruling class really has made it clear that this war is just about providing profits to the military-industrial complex. I mean, a speech at Lockheed Martin. Incredible. Incredible. Well, this is something that sociology professor William I. Robinson has written and talked about extensively. We played that quote from him earlier um, with Greg Wilpert, but, and then I referenced earlier that article that he had written called Global Capitalism Has Become Dependent on Warmaking to Sustain Itself. I want to give you a quote from that article. He says, quote, shares of military and security firms surged in the wake of the Russian invasion. Two weeks into the conflict, shares of Raytheon were up 8%, General Dynamics up 12%, Lockheed Martin up 18%, and Northrop Grumman up 22%, while war stocks in Europe, India, and elsewhere experienced similar surges in expectation of an exponential rise in global military spending. Russian President Vladimir Putin, in the words of the managing director of Aerodynamic Advisory, a Pentagon contractor, is, quote, unquestionably the best F-35 salesman of all time, in reference to a spike in U.S. government funding for Lockheed Martin fighter jets. Said one consultant to Boeing General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon Technologies, for the defense industry, happy days are here again. Yeah, I guess they really are. They're making record profits. And I think I remember reading earlier on that a lot of the members of Congress, including Democratic members, um, Debbie Washerman Schultz was one of them, have been making record profits off of their investments in de defense industry stocks as well. Big surprise. Um, so this is this concept of you know military accumulation is something that Rosa Luxemburg was one of the first people to bring up when she wrote about it in the final chapter of her work, Accumulation of Capital. As she said, quote, in addition, militarism has yet another important function. From the purely economic point of view, it is a preeminent means for the realization of surplus value. It is in itself a province of accumulation, end quote. Mm -hmm. 
And like Robbins had explained earlier, when you have this crisis of over over accumulation, like we do in the United States, the ruling class needs some reason to spend their money. And so, yes, Ukraine is a perfect <laughs> example of milita militarized accumulation and the way that, you know, the U.S. government is constantly just giving over profits to the military industrial complex. All right. So we called this episode The Costs of War because we wanted to get to this section where we take a step back from the war in Ukraine and look at bigger costs of war to world peace, the climate, and the ecosystem. We've already talked about the actual price tag of the Ukraine war, nearly $70 billion to Ukraine in just six months. In the last few episodes, we've heard various U.S. officials from Hillary Clinton to Lloyd Austin to Adam Schiff describe this as a proxy war, similar to Afghanistan, Hillary said. And we've mentioned a little bit about what it means to send billions and billions of dollars worth of weapons to right-wing nationalists, Nazis, and in whose hands these weapons will end up. These are all of the, quote, unintended consequences, the externalized costs, if you will, of all of the U.S. wars, from those of the Middle East to the dirty wars throughout Central and Latin America. Millions of dollars worth of U.S. weapons were sent to Central America, for example, to fight communism in the 1970s and 80s. And then later we saw these weapons end up in the hands of death squads, super violent gangs, and organized criminals. Look at the present-day cartel violence in Mexico, for example, as the result of a U.S.-driven drug trade and drug war. All of the U.S. arms that ended up in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, Beautiful countries that have been destroyed. These countries have been terrorized by radical insurgencies that crop up after the U.S. withdraws and leaves these countries in ruins littered with U.S. weapons. And this country never learns from that history. Yeah, just look at Afghanistan. The U.S. armed and funded anti-communist rebel groups, the Mujahideen in the 1970s, and provoked a Soviet invasion. Then the United States and the USSR withdrew from Afghanistan, and the country collapsed into a civil war. And what comes out of that war? Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So what do we expect exactly to come out of sending $70 billion to Ukraine, turning this country into our proxy in order to weaken Russia? You know, even CBS News ran a story on what might happen to all these weapons in Ukraine, a story they later pulled after pressure from the Ukrainian government. Oh. Ben Norton wrote an expose on this on his website, Multipolarista. Ben Norton, if you're not familiar with him, is an incredible journalist and filmmaker. His work has been published in dozens of independent non-corporate media outlets. This is a great clip. CBS News, one of the most important media outlets in the United States, published a documentary and an article revealing corruption in Ukraine, revealing that of the tens of billions of dollars that, that Western governments have sent to Ukraine of weapons in order to fuel this proxy war against Russia, of all of those weapons, only 30% have actually ended up on the front lines this documentary acknowledged that there is large-scale systemic corruption. There's a big black market for weapons in Ukraine. There's weapons being siphoned off by oligarchs and warlords. And then what happened? CBS News censored itself. 
it retracted its own documentary and changed its article, changed its written report under pressure from the Ukrainian government. Furthermore, the foreign minister of Ukraine publicly attacked CBS News and called for an investigation into CBS, which is an attack on freedom of the press. It shows how little the Ukrainian Western-backed regime actually cares about democracy. This is a, a truly scandalous affair. Unfortunately, it got very little coverage in the media. But today I'm going to be talking about this scandal. Uh, I'll be summarizing the main points of this report that was published by CBS News. I'll actually also be including a few clips here from that censored documentary, because before it was removed off the internet, off of CBS's website, there were some people who, who were able to copy it and post it. We're seeing this incredible historic flow of weapons coming into Ukraine. Do we have any sense as to where they're going? We don't know. There is really no information as to where they're going uh, at all. You know, all this stuff goes to the border, and then kind of like something happens, it kind of like you. 30% maybe reaches its final destination. 30%? Are you concerned about weapons getting in the wrong hands? I don't care at all whether that happens. Some also reported weapons are being hoarded, or worse, fear that they are disappearing into the black market, an industry that has thrived under corruption in post-Soviet Ukraine. Yes, yeah, so 30% of the weapons are even reaching the Nazis on the front line. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess, you know, this is what happens when you decide to send billions of dollars of aid into one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Um, you can watch the full segment at Multiple Arista. We'll put the link to Ben's piece in the show notes. Yeah, you'll have to watch it there. You will not find it on CBS. So back to the price tag and the weapons shipments to Ukraine. I'm sure that this $70 billion in military aid is just the beginning. I remember when the price tag for the Iraq and Afghanistan wars topped $1 trillion. This Ukraine thing could easily go on forever, or at least until it starts World War III with Russia and we're all annihilated. Sorry, but that is the logical end to this. Even if nuclear war doesn't happen and the United States keeps upping the ante with a major su nuclear superpower, and it doesn't result in mass extinction instantaneously, we'll still have a mass extinction problem on our hands because of the climate and specifically because of the relationship a war economy has on the climate and the ecosystem at large. All right, so moving on to another topic, China. For months now, we've been hearing Secretary of State Blinken rage on about China, threatening to do something about China, mouthing off about how important it is to honor an international rules-based order or some shit like that, that the United States would never follow if there were such a thing. Here is Secretary of State Blinken on May 26, 2022. Our administration uh, is committed to leading with diplomacy to advance the interests of the United States and to strengthen the rules-based international order. That system is not an abstraction. It helps countries resolve differences peacefully, uh, coordinate multilateral efforts effectively, and participate in global commerce with the assurance that everyone is following the same rules. 
the alternative to a rules-based order is a world in which might makes right and winners take all. And that would be a far more violent and unstable world for all of us. Hmm. Might makes right, winners take all, a far more violent and unstable world. We wouldn't know anything about that now, would we? No, no, that's not the history of the United States at all. No, I mean, look at all the, you know, the countries that China has been bombing and intervening in for the last 200 years. <laughs> oh, the hypocrisy is astounding. It's just becomes clear that Blinken's job is to perform a smoke and mirrors act around Biden's foreign policy agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, in the case of China, it's all about making China look like the aggressor and the belligerent one against international law and rules. And that's completely United States. When was the last time the United States even de- officially declared war on some place they were bombing? Mm-hmm. Um, World War II, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when Israel murders a beloved Palestinian American journalist, Blinken tries to pacify the family while providing cover to U.S. funded Israel to yep. make sure an actual independent investigation will never be done. Yeah. While simultaneously calling for an independent investigation. <laughs> Smoke and mirrors. That's, that's his specialty. Yeah, he's a total slime ball. Mm-hmm. And of course, he would have to be in order to be the spokesperson for U.S. foreign policy. Yep. Um, let's get a little bit more into the background of Blinken here. What, what do you have on him, Crawdads? Well, Anthony Blinken worked at Pine Island Capital Partners from 2018 until at least December of 2020. Pine Island Capital Partners is an investment firm specializing in, wait for it, Defense companies. Oh. (laughs) He also led a consulting firm called West Exec Advisors, which he co-founded with Michelle Florney, who is now the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy under Biden. Both of these defense corporations are tied to lobbying groups in D.C. And together with former Raytheon board member Lloyd Austin III, Biden's State and Defense Department is essentially being run by lobbyists and consultants for the military-industrial complex. That's what we know. Okay. And now, of course, the Biden regime is actively provoking another war with China. Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan professing ironclad support for Taiwan. Incredible. Which is in violation of the U.S. one-China policy that this country has maintained for decades. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, To get a little bit more perspective on the history of U.S.-China relations and Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, here's a short discussion from the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. Brian is speaking to Dr. Ken Hammond, professor of East Asian and Global History, as well as the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University. The Chinese foreign ministry has said that there are what they call guardrails, meaning the thing that keeps the car safe in the car being U.S.-China relations. And those guardrails are the three communiques. So I'm going to start with the Shanghai communique because Richard Nixon goes to China following a secret diplomacy with Henry Kissinger and Zhou Enlai and Mao. And Nixon comes in 1972 and they sign the Shanghai communique. February 1972 is, you know, 50 years ago. Ken, you and I were involved along with others from Pivot to Peace in a commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Shanghai Communique. 
And then the other guardrails that the Chinese government is announcing are two subsequent communiques. The key to the communique, the key to the reestablishment of U.S.-China relations following Nixon's trip and starting at Nixon's trip was the core element of the Shanghai communique. And the core element was a recognition and acknowledgement that Taiwan is indeed a part of China. Nixon wanted to go to China for his own reasons. They were trying to end the war in Vietnam. They were trying to divide the Soviet Union from the People's Republic of China and vice versa. It's kind of a divide and conquer strategy against the two major socialist countries. It was a complicated political maneuver. But the Chinese said to, the, to Nixon and earlier to Kissinger, look, Okay, we'll welcome you. We want normal relations with the United States, which is, of course, completely understandable and proper for a socialist country which desires peace and thus normal relations. Yes, we want this, but the key is that you must acknowledge that Taiwan is part of China. That was that important to China at that time. And the Shanghai communique says as much. And then Deng Xiaoping meets with, I believe, Carter in 1979, and then there's a subsequent communique in the early 1980s. Let's talk about these guardrails, as the Chinese put it, and how the Biden administration appears to be trying to tear those guardrails down. You know, the idea that the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third person in the line of succession to the presidency, a very, very high-ranking member of the United States government, is planning on making an official journey, an official visit to the island of Taiwan. It goes completely against the official position of the government of the United States, which is that there is only one China and that Taiwan is part of China. This was stated in the Shanghai communique 50 years ago. It was reiterated in two subsequent bilateral communiques. This is the official position of the United States, and it is also the status of things in the United Nations. China holds the seat for itself in the United Nations on the Security Council. Taiwan is part of China, and that's recognized by the vast majority of governments of states, of member states of the UN as well. So, you know, this idea that the United States, that a very high-ranking leader of the United States government is going to have an official visit to sort of acknowledge or legitimize the idea that the government that is in place on Taiwan is something other than you know, local authorities within the larger structure of China. This goes against the official version of things, the way things ought to be, the way things actually are. But it is part and parcel of what has been an ongoing practice by the United States of actions, activities that are provocative, that are seen, that are felt by the Chinese to be provocative and are intended by the United States to be provocative, to try to elicit a reaction from China, to challenge China's sovereignty, to challenge its territorial integrity, to interfere in its internal affairs. The Taiwan issue is an internal affair of the Chinese people on both sides of the straits. And it's one that the Chinese have been very clear. They want to resolve in their own way, in their own time, without any outside interference. And if that process could be allowed to go forward unmolested, I'm sure the Chinese people would find ways to work together and grow together in a future. There's no need for that to be rushed or pressured or pushed. The only pressure, the only disruption in that process is what comes from the outside, especially from the United States. So, 
you know, there's a long history of this. The South China Sea sailing American warships through the Taiwan Strait, which is clearly China's territorial waters. These are acts which the United States has been carrying out with increasing frequency in order to try to push China, to provoke China, perhaps trying to get China to do something ill-advised, to do something that would legitimize the portrayal of China as the expansionist, aggressive power, when in fact, of course, it's the United States that has gone thousands and thousands of miles across the Pacific, right to the shores of China, to assert its rights, its dominance, its power in the world. It's not the Chinese that are doing this. Chinese don't have foreign bases. They have one little naval facility in the Horn of Africa to help the UN out with anti-piracy activities. But China's not out there in the wider world trying to take over other countries, manage their internal affairs, impose their power. That's what the United States does. And so this is yet another step, yet another gesture along those lines. But it's a particularly important one because of the high level that Speaker Pelosi occupies and because of the sort of flagrancy with which she's carrying out this activity. So that's a little background on U.S.-China relations. Now, here's President Biden on 60 Minutes on September 18th, 2022. This interview took place more than a month after Pelosi went to Taiwan in early August. What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan? We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago, and that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging their being independent. We're not, let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, Joe Biden marches to the beat of his own drum. Oh, my God. I mean, can you believe that? He contradicted himself in the very first sentence. He says, we agree with what we signed on to a long time ago, that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. <laughs> no, you idiot. A one-China policy means that Taiwan is the property of China. <laughs> they don't make their own decisions about their independence. That's exactly what a one-China policy means. Oh, my God. <laughs> No wonder a White House spokesperson had to call 60 Minutes to uh, do damage control and clarify on that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he contradicts himself all over the place by then saying that the U.S. military would defend Taiwan militarily. Right. That's absolutely in complete violation of the one China policy. Not, yeah. not to mention the Shanghai communique that Brian Becker just discussed. Yeah. I mean, decades and decades of U.S.-China policy have set precedent for this. And now, you know, he just marches to the beat of his own drum, like 60 Minutes was saying. You know? <laughs> but the commander in chief has something different to say. 
But, you know, Biden did something very similar with Russia. Do you remember when he publicly called for regime change against Putin? And then, like, someone from the White House made a call and walked back his statements? Yeah. And, you know, we don't know if this was just his normal state of cognitive decline when he said that, or if he was actually revealing top secret U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. But in either case, I feel like sometimes Biden's senior moments are actually, yeah, like you said, they're actually being used as a decoy to hint about the real intentions of U.S. foreign policy without coming right out and just stating them honestly. But, you know, later the truth eventually does come out, like with Lloyd Austin confirming that the much larger geopolitical agenda of the proxy war is to weaken Russia, not just defend Ukraine. Yeah, and it does actually appear that regime change in Russia is the goal, with Zelensky's recent decree that they won't negotiate with Putin. Um, just like with Ukraine, you have all these older State Department officials like Kissinger himself, Pentagon experts, etc., warning against the U.S., provoking war with China in violation of its own longstanding policies and against the advice of many foreign policy experts within the U.S. government. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm no expert on U.S.-China history, but I do know that China has a tiny fraction of the military arsenal and the military bases that the United States has all over the world. And I do know that China is our number one importer of cheap goods in the United States. So I really can't understand what sense it makes for the United States to provoke a war with our number one trading partner, it just kind of defies common sense. It seems a little bit reckless and unnecessary. And besides the fact that U.S. consumers would be absolutely screwed if China decided to place trading sanctions on us. Yeah, that would be devastating to the United States economy. <laughs> and you know, China also has 1.4 billion people and a nuclear arsenal. You know, no one is going to win in a war with China. Yeah, no one wins in a cold war with China except for the weapons manufacturers. Yeah. Do you ever feel like taters that our government has just completely abandoned us? Yes. <laughs> like well, that was a quick answer. No hesitation. All the time. <laughs> like it's whether it's COVID or effing monkeypox or nuclear war or massive inflation or price gouging or gas prices or climate collapse, they are not going to lift a finger to save us. I seriously feel like they've just sold us off to the highest bidder. Yeah, and yeah, that's what we're talking about with military accumulation and a permanent war economy. The risks go up exponentially on every front all the time. And the government really just is a pawn for the military industrial complex. Yeah. You know, the people are just an afterthought if they even think about the people, you know. I don't think they think about the people. No, I mean, maybe they think about getting votes when it comes up to midterms, but they're more interested in actually fundraising from the people than getting their votes. That's true. You know, the ruling class has never cared about the working class of the United States, except for as a method to accumulate profit. The U.S. really just is an oligarchy. There's no democratic control here at all. Okay, so finally, to our last section, let's talk about the climate and ecological collapse. Huh. 
So it looks like there's going to be upwards of $70 billion spent on Ukraine this year. Let's talk about how that compares to what the U.S. is spending on something like the future of the human race or, say, climate collapse. Yeah, um, it's it's not as much as $70 billion. <laughs> you know, the fiscal budget for 2023 includes $45 billion in spending on climate change. You know, we can tell where Biden's priorities are. You know, sending weapons to neo-Nazis in Ukraine is far more important than addressing the most urgent crisis to have ever faced the human race. Yep. And the Manchin-Schumer bill on inflation, the Inflation Reduction Act. Doesn't was, do anything on inflation. Yeah, that one, <laughs> besides the fact that it doesn't do anything on inflation, was also pushed by Democrats and the corporate media as a huge climate spending bill. But it only contains $370 billion in climate change spending over the next 10 years, a measly $37 billion per year. Meanwhile, the military budget is $840 billion per year. So climate spending is 4.4% of the military budget. That's sickening. And, you know, as a comparison, the Biden administration plans to spend $50.9 billion on nuclear weapons in 2023. That's more than climate. Yeah. The U.S. is spending more on weapons that should never be used. You know, nuclear weapons are that weapon that, you know, shouldn't exist, whose use would likely result in global annihilation, then on addressing the climate catastrophe. And, you know, how bad is the climate crisis? Well, take a deep breath, y'all. <laughs> sorry. Sorry to deliver this news. Um, but I'm sure you've followed some of it, but this, this list is a little horrifying. So looking so far at 2022, it was the hottest summer on Earth in the history of record keeping. June and July saw massive heat waves blanket large parts of Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, Asia, as temperatures climbed above 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit in many places on Earth, breaking records, breaking historic records. Also in June and July, heat wave fueled fires raged across Portugal, Spain, and parts of France, killing more than 2,000 people. Fire season, of course, devastated California again with its new normal, severe drought throughout California. Idaho also had massive fires this summer. You know about that, Taters. Yeah, I think there was you know, over 30 separate fires in Idaho at one point. Mm -hmm. Flash floods also killed 80 people in Iran with dozens more missing. And in the United States, flash floods hit Kentucky. But that was just like over the summer. And then September and October came, autumn in North America, in the Northern Hemisphere. And we have, in the last two months, the death toll from Hurricane Ian has reached 30, 131 as of October 7th, the day that we recorded this show. This makes Hurricane Ian second only to Katrina among the deadliest storms to hit the mainland U.S. in this century. In September, more than 1.5 million people were in the dark after Hurricane Fiona knocked out all the power and the water for people across all across Puerto Rico. Alaska's governor declared a state of emergency after the remnants of Typhoon Murbach brought a 1,000-mile-wide path of destruction to the state's Pacific coastline. Murbach was Alaska's worst storm in a half century, 
the most intense September storm ever observed in the Bering Sea and one of the strongest storms to ever hit Alaska. In Japan, 9 million people were ordered to evacuate their homes as one of the largest typhoons to ever hit Japan made landfall on the southern island of Kyushu with winds topping 110 miles per hour. The storm brought flooding and landslides to Japan's main island of Honshu, and the Japan Meteorological Agency classified the typhoon as violent, its most severe category. And then in Pakistan, massive floods left a third of the country underwater. More than 1,500 people died or have died so far, while 33 million people were affected. So that's just a little taste of what's been going on in September and October on planet Earth. Jeez. Can we start like naming hurricanes after U.S. officials? Right. Like Hurricane Blinken. Hurricane Pelosi. Typhoon Victoria Newland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that would be appropriate. I mm. mean, given who's funding these crises. Yeah, it's just, you know, every day there are more and more climate catastrophes. And these are being brought about by the ruling class. You know, it's impossible to keep up with record-breaking weather events happening all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that climate collapse is being driven by carbon emissions. This is a scientific fact. We know that the United States is historically the biggest emitter of carbon and still the largest emitter per capita in the world. We know that the U.S. military emits more carbon than most countries in the world. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle trying to figure out exactly what the U.S. military emits because they don't comprehensively report on it. You know, it's very difficult to get consistent data from the Pentagon and across U.S. government departments. Can't imagine. Yeah. You know, in fact, the United States insisted on an exemption for reporting military emissions in the 1997 Kyoto Protocol. Right. So... No transparency. No. No. So there's a research project called The Costs of War run by Netta Crawford, a professor and chair of political science at Boston University. And she took on this ambitious research project in 2019 of trying to estimate the amount of carbon that the U.S. military produced, which was a really vexing task since the U.S. military has no requirement to report their carbon emissions, as Taters just mentioned. Can you believe that? No requirement to report your pollution. I mean, the United States military sits above the law in terms of reporting any of its effects on the climate. But based on Netta's research, she estimated that the U.S. military produced around 1.2 billion tons of carbon emissions between 2001 and 2017. Wow. Yeah. And that was several years ago with nearly a third of those emissions coming from U.S. wars overseas, including Afghanistan and Iraq. By one account, the U.S. military is a larger polluter than 140 countries combined, including numerous industrialized nations such as Sweden, Denmark, and Portugal. We know that this data is incomplete and probably um, low. I mean, these numbers are low because of lack of reporting. Yeah, so let's just kind of think about this for a minute here. So we have the impact of the U.S. military, which maintains some 600,000 facilities around the world, mm. spread over 27 million acres and in at least 160 different countries. Oh, my God. Yep. 
And we know the United States as a country is the single biggest historical carbon emitter in the world. Yep. Historically, that's true. Even if China emits more carbon at this moment, like a lot of anti-China people like to point out, the cumulative carbon emissions in Earth's atmosphere are mostly from the United States. So from a climate perspective, provoking more wars with the world's largest economies, Russia and China, seems you know maybe like a death wish, like collective suicide for the planet. Yep. This foreign policy posture makes zero sense if you're concerned about keeping humans alive and an ecosystem that supports them intact. This war economy only makes sense through the profit lens of global capitalism. At this same moment, when the U.S. is provoking carbon-fueled wars around the globe, big oil is making record profits. Happy days are here again. <sighs> For the military-industrial complex and big oil. Yep. You know, during the second quarter, Exxon, Chevron, and Shell made a combined $46 billion over three months. Wow. And mainly you know, due to high gas prices. Price gouging. Yeah. And add to these profits, massive weapon sales from the military industrial complex, manufacturing and selling weapons to Ukraine and now Taiwan. My God, it never ends. You know, we already heard Noam Chomsky at the beginning discussing what the Ukraine war is doing to the chances of surviving climate collapse. And we already talked about what the United States is spending on climate versus what they're spending on war. $70 billion on Ukraine so far this year versus a measly $37 billion for the climate. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, all these big oil companies are expanding development operations and investment in oil. And then there's the largest fossil gas, fossil fuel gas leak in world history with the four recent explosions in the Nord Stream pipelines and who is likely behind those. And we know that methane released in these leaks is a super driver of climate collapse. This is a perfect example, Taters, of how the Uniparty will not save your children. Yet liberals go on and on about the importance of voting for the lesser evil, but the policies of Democrats alone are still on track to kill us all. The planet is burning. The science has been clear for decades. This is corporate corruption and massive giveaways to big oil. We literally need a revolution if we are going to survive. Right now, in the midst of this climate disaster, the United States is an empire in decline. But instead of stepping back gracefully and working cooperatively for peace and justice, diplomacy and planetary health, our government has gone off the deep end. They are launching desperate last-ditch efforts to dominate the world in the form of provoking wars with the world's greatest superpowers and against other nuclear powers. The United States as a global capitalist and military hegemon will never surrender or go peacefully into the night. Instead, it's going out kicking and screaming, provoking wars and pouring billions of dollars into the military and police at home. Congress has already approved an $840 billion military budget for 2023, the largest one in world history. And Biden is now pushing for $37 billion more dollars for police. Well, yeah, so that's the same number that they propose to spend annually on climate change. It's just going to go for police. Just to, for police. Who, as we know, repress the working class in the United States and 
are murdering people of color at a higher rate than ever before. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness for the Black Lives Matter movement. It clearly had a huge effect on Biden. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we know that capitalism needs to promote constant conflict in order to fuel the profits of monopoly capitalists of the transnational corporations. And this means screwing the working class at home so that national discontent is on the rise. You know, we're officially in a recession. The GDP dropped for a second quarter. Now, this is on top of a pandemic recession. We just sort of came out of, but not really. And while interest rates hover around 7%, preventing most U.S. workers from being able to take out loans for housing, school, you know, any kind of loan, it's just it's a class war, as it always has been. You know, we have inflation with gas prices, record profits for the oil companies. We have high interest rates. We have poverty. You know, child poverty is going up because the Democrats decided not to renew the child tax credit. Mm-hmm. Um, we have homelessness, which is also on the rise in many parts of the country. We have hunger, mass discontent. I don't think very many people are happy with their situation right now. I know two-thirds of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. And we don't have any kind of real social and domestic spending. The ruling class is looking to fuel these culture wars at home, looking to widen divisions between the you know so-called left and right, and fuel fascist movements at home and abroad. This is a real war on the working class not just here in the United States, but around the world. And, you know, as Marxists, socialists, and communists, we understand this kind of class war as a result of capitalist crisis. And here's Chomsky one last time. We can't influence what happens in the Kremlin. We can influence what happens in the United States. And this is why we have to focus on what the United States is doing. You know, as we've quoted before from German revolutionary Marxist Karl Liebknecht, the main enemy is at home. It's the United States that is sending billions in weapons to Ukraine while waging a class war on us here at home. As Eugene V. Debs famously said, quote, the master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. End quote. The working class always loses when the U.S. goes to war. Whether it's a proxy war or a cold war or a hot war, the only winners are the capitalists. Fascism is on the rise, impending U.S. civil war, threats of World War III, nuclear war. And the thing that undergirds all of them is whether or not we have a viable planet to live on. We have no hope of survival without a habitable planet. And capitalism has proven that it is not compatible with preserving or protecting the planet. It's time for a revolution. We have to fight together. We cannot stay in our silos. Silos are based on individual identity, and we must build collective, class-based, international solidarity if we are going to survive the chaos that is coming. No matter who we are, our struggles and our liberation are connected. Societies based on individualism cannot survive species-level extinction events. This is going to require all hands on deck, all of us working together. We need anti-war movements to work with labor movements, to work with indigenous land and water protectors, to work with abolition movements, racial and economic justice movement, 
it's all hands on deck now. Let's give the final word to legendary musician, artist, and activist, Roger Waters. We the people who represent the we the people who somewhere understand that we have to figure out a method of collaborating with one another that might, at the end of the day, save this beautiful planet that we all call home. Because they, the powers that be, the neocons, the profit mongers, the war machine, are working as hard as they can to destroy it as fast as they can, including possibly with nuclear war. Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.